Welcome to CMS On Air, the podcast on migration and refugee issues, brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies of New York. I'm Emma Winters, CMS's Communications Coordinator. This is the first episode of a series, Accompanying Immigrants in the COVID-19 Era, How Catholic Ministries Are Transforming Successful Programs. In this episode, you'll hear Kevin Appleby speak with Father Jose Juan Cervantes Gonzalez, a Scalabrini priest who runs the Casa Scalabrini Centro de Pastoral Migratoria in Guadalajara, Mexico, and Father Peter Chilela, a Scalabrini priest by training who has settled in the Diocese of Hamilton in Canada. Both Father Jose Juan and Father Peter have stepped up their advocacy efforts on behalf of migrants during the pandemic. First, we will hear from Father Peter, who has an active ministry with migrant farm workers, but is reaching out in different ways because of the pandemic. Father, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kevin. My pleasure to be here. Father, why don't you give our listeners just an overview of your ministry to farm workers in the in the area around Blessed Sacrament? Yeah, so when I arrived uh, back in 2017, uh, I'm in the, just to give the listeners an idea, I'm sort of in the part of the, what would be considered the southwestern part of Ontario, um, approximately over 100 kilometers uh, west of the city of Toronto. So I'm in a rural area, and I found out right away that obviously farming is a big industry in this in this area, and that there were a number of migrant workers. So we began our ministry by simply hosting uh, our monthly mass with about, depending on the numbers and the season, uh, we can arrange from 30, 40, even up to 80 uh, attendees at our monthly service. And aside from the service, the religious service, we also provided the migrant workers with the opportunity to use the Wi-Fi in our parish center or hall because a number of them do not have access to Wi-Fi. And that's important because they use that for social media. And very important as well is the meal. So, uh, with the number of the parishioners and other volunteers, we always offer the migrant workers uh, a nice meal afterwards. That's how the model of our ministry has been up until this year. So, of course, we live in challenging times uh, where we have a global pandemic that's impacting everyone on the, on the earth. Um, and so I wanted you to maybe share with us how how you and the community, the parish community, and the surrounding community have have responded to the challenges that farm workers are facing during this pandemic? Yeah, that's that's been one of our limitations this year. Obviously, we we uh, of course we couldn't have our regular gatherings. So through other contacts, other means, I've been trying to uh, stay in touch with them on social media, principally on WhatsApp, and and then just attend to the needs as they arise. So, for example, uh, I found out in the month of June 
that uh, about 200 of them had been exposed to the virus on at this one particular farm, Scotland Farm, which is about, uh, uh, let's say, 30, 40, 30 miles south of uh, my parish. And, uh, and a number of them were going to be housed at a hotel in Brantford. Brantford is just about uh, 10 miles away from here. So we thought, what better way to show our appreciation and to show them some support? And we started this sort of uh, idea of providing gift bags, si simple items, toiletries, uh, masks, uh, uh, different items like that, uh, granola bars, you know, things that we could provide for them with the limitations of COVID. And from that spun the sort of uh, initiative of just trying to reach out to them in any way we can. So sometimes we'll get requests for luggages or work clothes. Because one of the challenges we are also facing, aside from the fact that we don't have ongoing contact with them, is is lately I've been discovering that a number of them are actually not allowed to leave the farm premise as they were in the past. Usually they were allowed to go once, perhaps twice a week, Friday afternoon, Thursday afternoon, to go to the stores, to cash their checks. And now many of them are limited from leaving the farm premise. So the the, the rapid uh, spread of the, the COVID-19 virus among the farm workers sort of indicates you know, some of the conditions under which they work. Could you talk a little bit about that, both yeah. conditions uh, previous to the pandemic, but how those conditions have adversely impacted the farm workers? Okay. Yeah, so the, the, the living conditions of the farm workers vary very much. Like, there's a wide variety. On the smaller farms, they'll tend to be housed in a kind of a, a smaller house or a trailer, uh, maybe shared among five or six um, on the smaller farms. On the larger farms, like a Scotland farm, they are housed in what they're called bunkhouses. So because why bunkhouses? Because their living quarters are basically uh, comprised of bunk beds. So they're compartmentalized into in these large uh, building facility like Scotland Farm. And they're subdivided into maybe four or five quarters. And each quarter consists of about maybe three or four bunk beds, double, right, top and bottom. And then they share the common space uh, for their eating, for their food. And then the washroom and the shower facilities are shared by all of them, meaning you could have between 60 to 80 uh, men in one large bunkhouse facility. It's very small. You know, I mean, the conditions were not ideal pre-COVID and definitely not ideal uh, during the pandemic. So, yeah, it, it exposes the weakness in that. Like, just like uh, some of our long-term care centers were not uh, adequately, adequately prepared to deal with the pandemic, the same thing with these bunkhouses. They're, they're small spaces, congregate living, and it exposes the, 
the migrant workers to the risk of being affected. I should also add, Kevin, that the the men, those who have been infected with the with the virus, have uh, were infected here in Canada. Not they didn't bring the virus from Mexico or Jamaica. They were exposed here through the community spread. That's an important point. Thanks, brother. Um, so what this, what the pandemic and the, the has sort of exposed even more so about the farm workers is the injustice that they face, you know, on a day-to-day, month-to-month basis in terms of their wages and their working conditions. Your, your, your support of them has gone beyond just providing gift bags and spiritual support uh, and other material support. You, you have been an advocate on their behalf. Um, could, could you talk a little bit about your advocacy efforts, the advocacy efforts of some of the Canadian bishops with regard to the farm workers and how the pandemic has sort of increased that advocacy over the past month or so? Sure. So it happened because of this, uh, this situation that happened in Scotland Farm in the, near Simcoe, Ontario. We developed a kind of a relationship with the local uh, health officer, medical officer, Dr. Shanker Nesathari. I call him Dr. Shanker. And he uh, alerted my attention to uh, an ongoing political discussion that they were having in that area, in that county. And it had to do with the question of the mandatory isolation or quarantine. So Dr. Shanker had, had instructed, had mandated that when the men had to be in quarantine, either because they just arrived, they had to fill, they had to fulfill their 14 day mandatory isolation, or if they were infected, but not so sick that they could, they could not, uh, they didn't have to be hospitalized. He mandated that in these bunkhouses, there should be no more than three uh, residents or three workers. And that started this big uproar. The, the large farmers, these are, we're not talking about family farms. We're, we're really talking about industrial farms that employ 200, 300, 500 workers in a, in a single farming, uh, uh, community or farming, uh, industry. And there was a lot of pushback because obviously it's a financial thing. The farmers, the owners uh, thought that that was restrictive, that uh, in terms of cost and all that, they always would say, no, it's not about cost. It's about food security. It's about cost. And Dr. Shanker asked for our support. And we, I, I talked to our, uh, my bishop. And then I mentioned that the other local bishop, uh, Bishop Fabro, Bishop Crosby, Hamilton Diocese, London Diocese, came forward and said, yes, we definitely have to support Dr. Shanker. And so basically we wrote a letter to the health board and uh, uh, taking the position that Dr. Shanker's uh, position was valid, that uh, there needs to be proper quarantine isolation. Now, I know it's a very local issue, a local matter, but our fear was that this could have consequences, meaning that if this particular county in Norfolk, decided that three was too restrictive, then 
that would lead to other counties saying, well, yeah, well, if they can allow five, six, or seven, then we should be allowed the same uh, number. And, and it also presents the problem, right? It's It basically falls to the farmer to carry out the mandate. I knew, for example, one farm that the, the mandatory 14-day quarantine was not happening. I One of the workers reached out to me and I said to him, oh, you just arrived? He said, yeah. So I said, oh, so you're in your quarantine. He said, no. He said, I arrived a few days ago, and my owner told me that I had to go and start working. And luckily, I was able to make a call to the local health authority, and they came and instructed the owner to say, no, he just arrived. You have to allow him to be quarantined properly. So these are the things that it really falls to the owners. The farmers call the shots. And I think it needs more government uh, inspection and supervision. And this is one of the areas that we've been trying to be advocates and saying, you know, you need to properly isolate. And then, of course, the long-term advocacy is the question of better conditions, living conditions, and possibly a way to allow for a path, a pathway for residency, because, uh, Right now, according to the laws, the men, uh, mostly men, these farm workers, do not have uh, a right to any kind of uh, residency status, like green card or legal residency. They're basically contracted year after year. They serve their eight months. Some have a different contract where they could stay a year or longer, but it does not guarantee them a pathway to some kind of residency. So uh, this local debate about the health and safety of the migrant farm workers has seemed to uh, generated more of a national discussion in Canada about the treatment of farm workers. You had an op-ed in the Toronto Star recently sort of highlighting some of the injustices faced by the farm workers. Are you hopeful that the Canadian Parliament, the Prime Minister, the national leadership will will look at this issue in more in depth and maybe enact uh, a path to citizenship for the farm workers in Canada. I'm hopeful, but I'm also realistic. Uh, you know, there's so much uh, on the table with the pandemic. You have the school issues, the long-term care facilities. So I'm, I am a little optimistic that. It has entered the national discourse, but I do know that there's a lot of things on the agenda. And um, with uh, why why did this become uh, prominent? Well, we had three deaths here in Ontario, and that created a bit of a stir. Sad, tragically, you know, people reacted at the moment, uh, and uh, you know, and I we we were, you know one of the workers was on the Scotland farm group and it sort of brought the discussion to the to the forefront. My fear is that like anything, a tragedy happens, there's the initial reaction, there's the you know the commitment from the government and so forth, but then there's little follow up in the long run. Yeah, we have the same challenges in the United States <laughs> on, on issues such as these. Um so aside from your advocacy and your and your provision of you know 
basic needs assistance to the farm workers. You you are you've provided pastoral services to them over the years, um, and, and you've been particularly you know supportive during this crisis. And I you mentioned that that three of the farm workers had died. Um, talk a little bit about the you know your pastoral ministry to farm workers during this pandemic. Yeah, so as I said, it's been challenging because we we don't have the usual contact with the farm workers. And remember, when we enter the the premise, it's private property. So I have colleagues that, for example, one colleague said that she was uh, making the rounds trying to bring some groceries and food items. And one day she made an extra visit to the farm for some reason it bothered the farmer or the the administration and they said you know what thank you but no thank you you're not allowed on our property so it's a very delicate work so while I try to be a strong advocate I know that I have to also walk that fine line because my my worry is I'm not so concerned that I'm going to upset a a farmer my my worry is that I'll be cut off from the farm workers so I try to do it in a very respectful way, on a case by case. Uh, so, for example, on one occasion, I took a group of them shopping. They were able to leave the farm premises. So I said, "Listen, guys, we you know we have a St. Vincent de Paul uh, store. If you need some clothes there, and then we went to do some food shopping. Another farm, they're not allowed to leave. So uh, once in a while, they'll give up myself or my volunteers." their wish list, even though supposedly the farm does take care of it, but sometimes language is a barrier and they don't get the items that they, that they require. Any final comments, Father, for the listeners? Uh, you know, just be aware. Like uh, we in North America, uh, we have, uh, we're, we're blessed with the produce that come to our tables, but think about how do that, apple, that peach, or that uh, produce, that food, come to my table. Uh, who are the people involved? And the hours of labor and sweat and, and, the, and the cost, because uh, at least here they're, they're, they're earning minimum wage, which is about $14 Canadian, roughly uh, 12 maybe $12 U.S. an hour. So um, think about you know, showing gratitude and being grateful for the for the work and the hard sweat and the and the labor that they put into it, so that we can have access to food that is basically relative. I know food has been cost has been going up, but we still we're still blessed that we pay uh, relatively less. Yeah, we say in the United States that uh, to U.S. citizens that they can't eat breakfast without eating something that a agricultural worker has touched. So. Exactly. So. As I said, I hope that people just become more aware of uh, the farm working community and the struggles. And also, I want to—I do—I do, I do want to add also that I do my my ministry. I'm I'm not only ministering to farm workers strictly, but I do have farm farmers owners, and I do want to say that there are a number of them that are just fantastic. They treat their workers with a lot of care and dignity. They treat them very, you know, I knew one family they were helping last year. One of their workers was having heart issues or some cardi- cardiological issues, and they were driving him to the 
to the city on many occasions so that he could get the necessary care for that. So there are a few of them that really stand out and, and do uh, treat these workers as they should be treated. Father Peter Tialella, thank you for your work and thank you for joining the Center for Migration Studies podcast today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. God bless. If you want to keep up with Father Peter's ministry, you can find out more at blessedsacramentburford.ca. In the next part of the episode, we'll hear from Father Jose Juan Cervantes Gonzalez. He runs the Casa Scalabrini Centro de Pastoral Migratoria in Guadalajara, Mexico. His organization had to close its shelter during the pandemic, but he is working to get permission from the Mexican government to reopen. Innovating is nothing new for the Scalabrinians in Guadalajara. In a moment, you'll hear Father Jose Juan describe how the Scalabrinians' initiatives have developed in recent years to meet the changing needs of migrants. Welcome, Father, to the podcast. Thank you, Kevin. We wanted to talk to you today about first your ministry to the migrants, but also the challenges you have faced in serving them during this COVID-19 pandemic, which of course has been a challenge for all of us. So why don't you first give us a sense of, of your ministry to the migrants, the services you provide, and, and your interaction with migrants on a daily basis. The Scalabrinians here in Guadalajara, we started off our missionary presence in the early 80s. We have almost 35 years, well, more or less 35 years here in Guadalajara. But in the past, we were very much focused in the formation program. As Guadalajara was a, a place that used to be sending migrants, but it was not a, a, a place receiving migrants or where the, where the migrants were very visible. During 2010, it happened here in Mexico, the massacre of San Fernando in Tamaulipas that forces to seek for another route for migration for the, migra for the Central American migrants going to the States. Guadalajara became like the central point of this route. Interesting. And uh, in that in that time, the seminary the, was uh, very mo very much focused in, in the formation program. But the, the same seminarians start asking, "What can we do for the migrants? What are we going to do in this new reality that the city is facing?" Actually, many of the migrants used to be seen in the streets asking for money in order to continue their, their travel through, through the border. Then we started uh, different initiatives. We used to offer uh, a meal for these migrants that were waiting for the train to, to continue their, their ride. But at the beginning, we said, we, we cannot do something very assistantialist. We need to think in something that, that is more integral. And at the same time, there were many 
organizations starting to make initiatives. There was a there were the projects of doing two shelters, one shelter run by mm -hmm. students coming from the ITESO, and the other shelter was made by the diocesan priest. And we were saying, well, the shelter is already done. We don't need to do other shelter. But what is what is what is missing in the attention to the migrants here in the city? And we discovered that uh, there was not a place for people that need or the special care. People that was sick or that maybe they were persecuted and they cannot be in another shelter. They have to be in a small place and a secure place. So at the beginning, we start thinking in, in building a shelter for a few people, a very small shelter for few people in order to protect them from abuses. But at the same time, we start speaking about migration. We start producing material for raising consciousness about migration. We started doing another kind of, of, of works that is not only focused in sheltering people, but also in, in advocacy and in raising consciousness about the, the new reality of, in the city. Sounds, sounds like you've come a long way. Let's go to 2020. Um, and right before the, the pandemic started, how many, how many migrants did you serve a day? Or did you have residing in the shelter? As we started the, the opening the shelter in 2016, the Office of Migration of the government, the, the, the Federal Office of Migration, asked a place for the deportees because they were, and they don't ha didn't have families here in Guadalajara or didn't have a place to stay. And the situation was very different from the from the migrants coming from Central America because they were different needs. The deportees from the states needed like a reintegration in society, like looking for a job, like a longer time to to stay in the house in order to get a job and, and to get settled in a new house. So we started trying to to set up a program for the deportees. And was very interesting because the, the main population that we started to receive were the deportees from the States. Yeah. And also because many of them cannot speak Spanish. And here in the house, at least we have one or two persons that were able to communicate with them in English. Mm -hmm. And then in 2019, they started the deportations to the interior of Mexico, but arriving to Guadalajara. Now, they are two weekly flights coming from Arizona straight to Guadalajara. And they arrive here in Guadalajara, and many of them return to their places. But there are some people that have no family or, or don't know what to do, or they need some time to ask for money or some, some needs that are not the normal ones. We have a, a post in the airport where we receive the migrants and we offer them our services and many of them arrive to our house. And the interesting thing is that from 
December to March of 2020, I received 100 migrants. In in the other years, we have 50 migrants. In this in this only in only in three months, we we started to receive 100 migrants. So uh, what? So so these flights started prior to the pandemic, but have yes. continued through the pandemic. They were they were suspended from March to June, and then they started again in June. Tell us about the most recent flights. How many migrants come to your shelter from each flight, and what have you done to prepare for the to protect the migrants from the COVID-19 virus? By the moment, we are close. We are not receiving now people. But I'm preparing, I, I hope to start receiving people very soon uh, because many of these people is being forced to, to go back to their, to, their, to their cities without even knowing if, they, if their families will receive them because now they, they, they are arriving to the airport and from the airport they take a bus to, their, to a place near their cities. They are just uh, sent to a nearby places. When do you expect to receive the first group of migrants from the U.S. that may be impacted by the virus? Uh, well, I hope next uh, next month. Okay. We are I, I am preparing two settings, two different settings. A setting for the people that that is free of COVID and a setting for people that has to be isolated. So I'm now in this process of preparing the place. And how many, how many do you expect to receive a week once, once you start receiving? More or less, we are speaking of the 5% of the people of each flight that are right to, to, to come to the house. So more or less, I'm I'm thinking about seven, eight, seven persons in each each time that the flight arrives. So about fifteen per week. Yes, and what they do is many of them they stay some days here. They ask for money to their families, and mostly of them they either go back to the to the border or they go back to their, their cities. But there's a group of people that they don't want to, to continue the, the experience, and they ask for finding a job here in Guadalajara, and we help them to find a job. And how long are they allowed to stay at the shelter? As, as, as long as they need. There are some of them that they will stay only three, four days. Mm -hmm. Others will stay one month, two months in order to get a job and to be able to rent a house. And you said you were, you created an isolation part of the shelter for those who may be infected and, and those who are not. Um, what, what do you do if, what will you do if a migrant gets really sick and needs hospital care? Do you have... A plan yeah. for that? that That's the point. That 
I'm not receiving people yet because I'm trying to get a covenant with government in order to, to, to ask them to, to take care of the migrants who are sick. Yeah. How, how is that going? Difficult, huh? It's, it's difficult because the resources are very stretched, but they, they, there's goodwill. The person in charge is a very nice person. And she's trying to do her best in order to help us. But we, we know that we cannot close our doors forever. We, we, our vocation is to help people. And our vocation is to accompany people to make their decisions in life. And we cannot stop this. Life will continue and we have to adapt to the new reality. And this will be more difficult we have to to be more careful, but we are training the, the personnel of the shelter is being trained in order to, to to receive the people. Now that we are not able to to serve directly the migrants, we are focusing our efforts in trying to to raise consciousness. And uh, I'm I'm working with the website and I'm working also with a publication. Is mainly in Spanish. Well, do, do you want to comment um, on the U.S. and Mexican migration policies that lead to this? You know, the deportations from the U.S., where where some of the migrants might already have the the, the virus. In this moment, there are eight flights coming to the interior of Mexico. Most of these people is caught just at the border. So it, they are called rejections. And many of them, they are sent to Guadalajara and then in two days or three days will be again in the, in the border. Yeah, of course. Yes. So, because they already paid to the pollero, they make an inversion and they cannot lose the inversion because it's very, very high. Now the people is paying until... $6,000 to cross, or even I have heard stories about uh, people paying 10000 Many of the people that is being deported now, they are not with COVID because they have not been confined in detention centers. Right. The problem would be when they are starting sending people from the detention centers and they are start mixing during the flights, they send, for example, uh, 90 persons coming from the, the border and 40 for the detention centers. That will be the problem, that they are already mixing people. And sometimes you, they don't tell you who comes yeah. from what part and one comes from the other. And you have to ask to the persons and they have to scream them. So it's, it's been difficult. Any final words, Father, you want to share with the listeners about what's happening during the pandemic and, and the plight of, of persons on the move, migrants that come to Guadalajara? Oh, I, I think something that happened, maybe not here in Guadalajara, but, but in other places, is that Mexico also deported many of the migrants to Central America when their, when their borders were already closed. And in many of the cases, the borders were closed and the people was just left in the border and were abandoned there. 
Right. And I think it was very responsible for part of the government, the way they way they handled the situation. But at the same time, the reaction of the civil society was very interesting because we were the society was able to give a hand to the people. Even if the churches were closed, the people continue helping in, in, in one way or in another. But we were trying to, to, to continue helping people. Mm-hmm. And I think the solidarity of the church and the solidarity of the organizations of, of civil society is always there. And we are trying to do our best in order to continue helping people. Father Jose Juan Cervantes, thank you for joining our podcast today and God bless you in your work. If you want to learn more about Casa Scalabrini, please visit migrantes.com.mx. CMS On Air's theme music is provided by The Music Case. For more podcasts like this one, you can follow CMS On Air on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find a full transcript of this episode or get more information on CMS's research, publications, and events, visit us at cmsny.org.